let me welcome all those of you who are gathered with us this morning to worship our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Welcome. I invite you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 through 21. Uh, we are at the end of 1 Timothy, but don't lose heart next week. Lord willing, we will start 2 Timothy. Uh, more of Paul's instruction to Timothy. So there's that to look forward to. 1 Timothy 6, 11 through 21. Let's hear God's word together. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things. And of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we confess that you have no beginning and no end. You are eternal. You are the creator of heaven and earth. You have, through your powerful word, summoned all things into existence, and you sustain all things in existence through that same word. You are eternally blessed and the fountain of every blessing. Whatever happiness and delight we know, we know because you have given it to us and you are its source. Father, open our eyes to behold your majesty and your greatness and your glory. Grant, Lord, that as we walk through this life, we would be gripped by the certain knowledge that you are exalted, that you are Lord over all. We pray that you would use your word this morning to open our eyes to your greatness. We pray, Lord, that you would use your word to sanctify us, making us more like your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. There's a New Testament scholar by the name of Leon Morris who describes the Apostle Paul as, quote, a God-intoxicated man. Apt. You read through his letters, and you see that, in fact, there is this preoccupation with the glory, the majesty, the exaltation of God. It's an important motif. Uh, for instance, when, he, when Paul writes for the collection of the saints in Judea and Jerusalem and says we, we need to gather funds to support these poorer Christians, his aim is not fundamentally to meet the material needs of fellow Christians, as important as that is. His aim is fundamentally to bring glory to God. As the saints receive this help, they will give thanks and praise to God, and that's what it's all about. 1 Corinthians 10.31, he urges believers to do all to 
the glory of God. Everything we do, we need to exalt the name of God and honor it. All right, that's the driving principle of the Christian life. And in this passage that we're looking at today, we have this magnificent and exalted statement of God's un- unparalleled majesty. But even though you have this exalted description of God, it has a very practical purpose. Namely, uh, it's this vision of God that will sustain Timothy in faithful obedience. It will enable him, and by extension us, uh, to persist in obedience even when it is difficult when we see this God that Paul describes. This morning as we look at this passage, we will note three things. Number one, the right attitude toward money which is an extension of the theme last week, which is all about right use of money and contentment and so on. The, the right attitude towards money. Second, the priority of a Christ-like character. The priority of a Christ-like character. And third, the relationship between God's glory and our obedience. Relationship between God's glory and our obedience. Uh, we are going to do things in uh, a slightly in an order that's slightly out of step with Paul's organization here. We're going to talk to the rich first. He, start, he speaks to Timothy and then the rich. We'll start with the rich and then go to Timothy. Uh, verse 17 speaks to well-to-do believers. And first he tells them what not to do, what these wealthy Christians shouldn't do. Charge them not to be haughty or arrogant. This is a temptation that comes with wealth, isn't it? To forget God who made you wealthy, to think that you did it in your own strength, to be very impressed with yourself and to look down on other people who uh, don't live at the same level as you do. And, and the warning here is don't think less of others who have less than you do. Be humble. Resist that subtle disdain for those who don't live at your standard of living. Your car may well glide into the parking space. And the person next to you may squeak into the parking space. Uh, but resist that subtle disdain for the guy with the inferior car, with the lesser standard of living. Guard your heart against that arrogance that comes with wealth. One expression of this arrogance, incidentally, is that the rich seek only to befriend the fellow rich. The only people worth knowing and pursuing and investing in are people who know how to generate money. We see this mindset even of those who aren't rich, right? The rich know. They have all the answers. Pursue them. One way to resist the arrogance that comes with wealth is to not simply pursue other wealthy people, but to pursue deep relationships with people who aren't as well-to-do as you are. Get to know them. Enjoy them. Learn from them. One way to resist this tendency toward arrogance. If you're well-to-do, many of us in this room are, understand that with Wealth comes temptation to be proud. Guard your heart. Do everything you need to do to keep yourself from swelling with self-importance. First caution, don't be haughty. Second caution, tell them not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Every one of us wants to feel secure and safe and protected. And one of the most common sources of protection that people run to is wealth, money. If I can just get a little bit more, then I'll be safe and protected. And notice what Paul says, that riches are uncertain. Trends in the economy can undermine your wealth. Unexpected expenses can undermine your wealth. If if your hope is in your money, 
then you're never really secure because you never know if it's going to stay there or fly away. Uh, if your hope is in your money, then your, your peace is going to contract and expand with every market trend, right? There won't be a lasting stability, a lasting peace. Instead of trusting in money, what are we to do? We are to set our hope on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. God exhibits an unflinching faithfulness to his people. You can always count on God to uphold you regardless of what the market is doing, regardless of what your circumstances are. God is a rock to his people, a refuge that protects them from the storms of life, and those who trust in him will not be easily shaken. They have a firm foundation to build their life on. Trust in God, not money. If he has you, if he holds you in his hand, you are safe. Look to God. Don't trust in money. Trust in the Lord. And recognize this about God. He, he richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Perhaps an unexpected statement that, that from the hand of God come all the good things of life. Salvation, yes, forgiveness of sins, every spiritual blessing, yes, but also the good things of life. They come ultimately not from money, but from the creator. Why do people hold on to money? Because they think that by, by means of that money, they will secure the good things of life. But Paul says, remember, remember who the creator is, and remember that he gives generously, and knowing that enables you to give generously. But God is the giver of all good gifts. So when we experience the good things of life, food, friends, vacations, cars, property, what have you, we should recognize their source, and the source is God, and we should lift up our hearts in gratitude and thanksgiving. And when we enjoy God's gifts properly, giving him the glory and thanksgiving, we can do so with a clean conscience. God has created good things to be enjoyed. And when we do so, again, with gratitude and in the right way, there is no sin. We can enjoy the gifts that God bestows with a clean conscience. Trust in that God, not in money, says Paul to Timothy. The rich are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. The only way that money is safe and won't destroy your soul is if you're generous with it. Keep giving it away. You hold on to it and it will destroy you. It will become a stumbling block to you in your relationship with Jesus. The only safe thing to do with money is to invest it in the kingdom and to enhance the lives of other people. If you hoard it, it will harm you. Be generous with it. Be generous knowing that to give to God and to, to others is actually to invest in that which is really life, in the life of the world to come. Look at verse 19. Storing up treasure for, for yourselves as a foundation for the future. This is very similar to what Jesus says. Why are you going to invest your wealth in this life in things that are fleeting? Use your wealth in ways that will maximize your joy in the world to come. Use your wealth in ways that will create a ripple effect for eternity. Use your wealth in ways that will reverberate for the glory of God and good of, of others for all time. When you give generously to God, you are investing in that future life. And that's an investment that can't ever disappear because of market trends or what have you. The question we need to pose to ourselves is, 
Am I sowing, am I investing financially so as to reap a harvest in this life? Or am I sowing to reap a harvest in the world to come? Am I in love like Demas with this present world and the promise of pleasure that it holds out? Or do I love Jesus and my heart burns for my true home which is in the world to come? And my use of money demonstrates that my home is not here but in the world to come. So give generously with eternity in view. That's Paul's admonition to Timothy for the wealthy. Now, turning back to Timothy, the first thing that the Apostle Paul says to him is that he ought to pursue a Christ-like character. He ought to pursue a Christ-like character. And this means, negatively, in verse 11, flee these things, turn from, run from these things, The immediate context suggests that it's the love of money especially that he should run away from. Don't love money. Run from that. If we're going to be like Jesus, that means we need to see temptation when it's coming, and we need to run in the opposite direction. We need to run from sin. We need to do what Joseph did when Potiphar's wife sought to seduce him. He left his coat behind him, and he bolted. That's the characteristic Christian posture towards sin. It comes our way, we sense temptation, and we run in the opposite direction. We don't play around with sin, flee from these things negatively. We run from, but notice we also run to. What do we run to? Christ-likeness. Pursue righteousness, obedience to the command of God. Godliness, reverence for God, overflowing in practical obedience. Faith, a trust and confidence in the Lord and in his his word. Love, a commitment to the well-being of other individuals, even to the point of sacrificing my own good for the sake of your good, my life for yours. Steadfastness, persistence, endurance in the path of obedience, even when it is difficult. Gentleness, a readiness to set aside my rights for your sake. A gentle person is not one who insists stubbornly on his ways, but is willing for the sake of unity, for the sake of others, to defer. Timothy pursue these things, and these are the very things that God's people in every generation ought to be pursuing. Increasing conformity to the character of Jesus. God is holy, and he wants us to be holy. This is the priority that we should be pursuing in our lives righteousness, godliness, and so on. Then Paul uh, gives another command to Timothy, verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. And in some ways, this is saying the same thing from a different perspective. Uh, Timothy will fight the good fight because of the faith, because of the truth of the gospel, as he turns from sin and pursues righteousness. It is through moral transformation, becoming more like Jesus, that he fights the good fight of the faith. Now, as many commentators point out, this is intriguing. Uh, Much of the letter is a command to Timothy to be faithful to his responsibilities as a pastor, to do what God has called him to do. Um, But what Paul underscores here is that if he is going to be useful to God and others, he needs to pursue increasing personal holiness. His usefulness in his public ministry, his usefulness as a pastor, is bound up with his own pursuit of righteousness. It is only as he fights against sin and fights for ever-increasing righteousness that he will be able to be what God has called him to be. Fight the good fight of the faith, which in this context 
refers to this increasing conformity to the character of Christ. If you want to be useful to Jesus Christ and a blessing to the people around you, if you want God to use you to bring others to himself and you want to have a godly uh, influence on others, nudging them towards Jesus Christ, then what you most need to cultivate is not great talent and gifting, but a Christ-like character. The most useful people are those who know how to love radically, who walk in humility and gentleness and sacrificial service. Those are the people who make a lasting impact in this life. So a wonderful instance of this in um, Larry Taunton's book, The Faith of Christopher Hitchens. For those of you who may not know, um, the late Christopher Hitchens was a very distinguished skeptic, very learned, very eloquent, very English. Uh, and he would have these debates with Christian apologists, and they'd go back and forth. And um, Taunton, who was a friend of uh, Hitchens and who debated Hitchens, uh, noted that many arguments didn't uh, impress Hitchens, but what impressed Hitchens was the fact that uh, Taunton and his wife adopted a little girl from an orphanage in the Ukraine named Sasha. And here's his description. For Christopher, however, it wasn't Sasha's oratory or evangelistic fervor that moved him and further unsettled his assumptions. It was the picture of a life redeemed from what was, he knew, a hellish existence in future. It is one thing to debate the merits of religion, but seeing it in practice was an altogether different experience for him. At dinner, Christopher, smiling to himself, watched her from a nearby table. As Sasha laughed and talked to her brothers, her vivacious personality overflowing, she neither knew that she was being observed nor that her very presence had rattled his worldview to the foundation. To be clear, my wife and I are not especially remarkable in this respect, but to Christopher Hitchens, this was more powerful than any argument that I or a thousand apologists of greater skill and intellect might have presented. And it was one for which he had no answer. If you want to silence the skeptics, if you want to draw people to Christ, walk in this way. Pursue godliness, love, faithfulness. That's the key to usefulness to God and being a blessing to others. There's a third command, so pursue righteousness, fight the good fight, take hold of eternal life. These commandments essentially overlap. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Eternal life doesn't mainly describe a really, really long life that goes on and on forever and ever. It's not quantity of life mainly. It's quality of life. Eternal life is the life of the age to come. Life marked by, uh, by living under the blessing of God knowing that your sins are forgiven, that you have a relationship with him. And according to the New Testament, that life, eternal life, is already present for the believer. If you're trusting in Jesus, then even now you, you are tasting something of the world to come in the joy of the Holy Spirit, the knowledge of the forgiveness of our sins, and fellowship with God. Even in the present, we're getting a foretaste of what is to come. But of course, there is a future aspect to eternal life, and that is especially what is in view here. And Paul says to Timothy that he ought to take hold of that life. 
to which you were called. Called by whom? Called by God. When God summoned Paul to himself in conversion, he summoned Paul to eternal life. Eternal life is not something that uh, Timothy or we earn through our moral striving. Eternal life is a free gift of God, earned for us by Jesus Christ and his redemption, and we are called to this life at conversion by the Father. So we are called to eternal life, and it is about this life that Timothy made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. This is probably a reference to Timothy's baptism. And the good confession is the public declaration that Christ is Lord. That's the confession, that is the context that is in view. Timothy, Christ has taken hold of eternal life for you and holds it out to you. Now run to take hold of that which Christ extends out to you and which he has purchased for you. The call is for Timothy to persevere in the faith, to continue on until he takes hold of that future life. And how should he do this? He should do this by turning more and more from sin and walking in increasing Christ-likeness and righteousness. That's the path that leads finally to eternal life. Jesus Christ keeps his people for that future day, but keeping on his end is manifest as striving for righteousness on our end. Take hold of eternal life. And so what we see in these opening verses is the absolute priority of becoming more like Jesus. One basic aim in our lives should be to reflect the character of our Lord in love and gentleness in every other way. First question I want to ask you is this. Is there in your heart a desire for holiness? Is there a desire to be like Jesus? to love sacrificially, to walk in humility. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. There is a thirst, a longing, a yearning to be like Jesus. Is that thirst there in your heart? Do you feel like, man, if I could just learn to love people sacrificially, that would be better than every kind of professional advancement? every kind of talent, and even wealth. If I could just learn to be patient, courageous, loving. Do you have that hunger for righteousness? And do you find holiness attractive? Do you feel like that, that is what I want and that is what I love seeing in other people? Jo- the American theologian Jonathan Edwards makes this observation about holiness. It, holiness appeared to me to be the highest beauty, far purer than anything here on earth, and that everything else was like mire, filth, defilement in comparison to it. Holiness appeared to me to be of a sweet, pleasant, serene, calm nature. The soul of a true Christian appeared like a little white flower as we see in spring, low and humbled on the ground, opening its bosom to receive the pleasant rays of the sun's glory, rejoicing, as it were, in a calm delight, diffusing around a sweet fragrance, standing peacefully and lovingly in the midst of other flowers round about, all in like manner opening their bosoms to drink in the light of the sun. There's Edward's picture of holiness. And through that picture, he tries to communicate something of his sense that to be like Jesus is wonderful beyond words. It's a calm and serene thing. 
It's like a white flower in the field opening up its petals to the sunlight. That's what holiness is like. In your heart, do you have that same sense? That to be like Jesus is better than almost any earthly blessing. Indeed, every earthly blessing. Do you want this? Do you see the loveliness and attractiveness of holiness? And secondly, do you seek it? Where do I get this? Verse 11, pursue righteousness. <laughs> right? It's a straightforward affirmation from the text. We should pursue holiness because that's what God wants for us. We should pursue these things. We should aim at them. How do we do that? Well, the first thing is we need to note where there's moral complacency in our lives. Where is it that we can you know, lose our temper, give way to impure thoughts, and not care? Is there a place in our life where we know what we're doing is contrary to God's will and we're just not that bothered? Oh, this isn't that big of a deal. A first step towards striving after greater holiness is to see those places in your life where you are not being faithful to God, to confess them, ask for forgiveness, and seek grace to repent and turn from them. Are you doing that? We seek holiness also by praying earnestly for it. We ask God to form in us the character of Christ, the patience, the self-control, the humility and love that is in our Lord. And we don't just pray for it, however. We also seek it through practical acts of obedience, practical steps towards greater holiness. For instance, if you struggle with pornography and lust, by all means, pray against your lust. Pray against pornography. But take steps to kill it. Pull aside a godly man. Confess your sin. Confession is a powerful means of spiritual growth. Confess your struggle. Ask for accountability in prayer. Put your computer out in the family room so everybody can see you when you use it. In other words, you don't just long for greater purity. Take steps to put sin to death and cultivate increasing obedience. You don't just drift into holiness of life. It requires intentionality. It's something that needs to be pursued. Are you seeking holiness? And finally, notice that many of these qualities you can't get by yourself. How are you going to grow in love in isolation? How are, you going to be, how are you going to become more gentle in isolation from others? Even righteous, how can you do that in isolation? Bottom line is you can't. If you're going to grow, you have to take initiative to help others in one way or another. To become meaningfully engaged with other people. Whether it's to help them grow in their walk with Jesus or to serve them practically, you need to get engaged with other people to become involved in other lives. It's as you do that, as you build deep relationships where someone sins against you and you have to forgive them, and you sin against them and they have to forgive you, and you work through these relational issues, as you do that, you find yourself becoming more like Christ. It doesn't happen apart from deep engagement with other people. If we want to grow, we have to pursue Others, it doesn't happen in isolation. What our temptation is, when things get hard relationally, what do we do? We withdraw. Oh, this person has turned out to be more difficult than I expected. I'll just go to this other person, or perhaps I'll just go to this other church or this other community, and I'll find the ideal person who isn't difficult. Guess what? If you peel back enough layers, everybody's difficult. You're difficult, I'm difficult. Nobody is easy to get along with when you really get in there, right? You know that about yourself. It's true of others. Uh, the path to growth is, is that having that willingness to work through 
tough relational issues and not simply pulling back when it gets hard because that's where the growth happens. Pursue righteousness. And then finally in verses 13 through 16, we see the relationship between our obedience and faithfulness to Jesus uh, and the glory of God, the connection between these two things. There is a solemn charge to Timothy. I charge you in the presence of God, the life giver, So in the presence of God Almighty, giver of life, in the presence of Jesus Christ who made the good confession before Pontius Pilate, and this is a reference to the fact that Jesus confessed himself to be the Messiah or the King. Same confession that Timothy made, Jesus Christ is Lord. In the presence of God and the presence of Jesus, I charge you to do what? To keep the commandment unstained. There's some question about what Paul means when he describes the commandment. In all likelihood, he's talking about everything that he said to Timothy in the letter all of his responsibilities to the church and his call to pursue righteousness and holiness, this is what's in view. In the presence of God and Jesus, pursue that, obey that. And how long should you do that? Until Jesus comes back. Keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Be faithful, Timothy, not for a day, not for a year, not for a decade, but until until the end, until the king comes back. And he's coming back. This present evil age, marked by mankind's opposition and rebellion against God, will pass away and will pass away soon. Our Lord Jesus Christ will come in glory and splendor, and he will make all things new. Timothy, your labors are not in vain. Neither do they go on and on forever and ever. An end is coming. The king is coming back. So take heart and press on and be faithful to the end. We who have trusted in Jesus Christ as our Savior need to have that attitude. Yes, obedience is often hard. We're faced with obstacles. But knowing that the King is coming back and soon should cause us to take heart and press on. Be faithful to the end. And then we get this glorious description of the majesty of God in verses 15 and 16. But as majestic and exalted as it is, it has a very practical purpose, which is to encourage Timothy to keep the commandment. Timothy, be faithful to the end. Why? Timothy, I'm going to tell you why, because this is who God is. This is the God we serve. Look at him. And in light of his majesty and exaltation and glory, persevere. The thing that strengthens us to run the race with joy to the end is a big vision of a majestic God. It's that vision that will sustain you in difficulties and in prosperity. So what does he say about God? He is the blessed. Which is perhaps slightly odd, because we think of God as blessing us, not the blessed, so that might surprise you. The idea is that God is the fountain of all happiness and good. God is the one who blesses us and all of his creatures. He is the one who enhances our lives, because all blessing resides finally in him. God has blessing in and of himself. He has happiness or fullness of life in himself. As one theologian put it, God doesn't have to go outside of himself for happiness. He possesses in himself everything that he needs for happiness, blessedness, and fullness of life. He shares that life and happiness with us 
but he does not derive that life and happiness from us. This should challenge our misguided and worldly and man-centered conceptions of God. God, for instance, doesn't create the world because he is a needy God, dependent on his creatures for happiness. God has in himself blessedness and life. He creates not to get happiness, but to give happiness to his creatures. He is eternally blessed. That's who God is. The only sovereign, the absolute authority and power in the universe, the one who opens and no one can close, the one who closes and no one can open. What he wills, he brings to pass, and no one can thwart his plan. He is sovereign. He is king of kings and lord of lords. All other kings and lords derive their authority and power from God. But his authority and power are not derived. They are absolute and inherent in who he is. There is no power or authority higher than God. It's a source of tremendous consolation for us, his people. It means that our lives are not finally determined by impersonal forces outside of our control, by chance events, by random things that happen to us. Our lives, every day, every detail of everything that happens is finally in the hand of God Almighty. Even to the degree that Jesus says no hair can fall from your head without the Father's willing it. Our lives are not at the mercy of random violence, terrorists, all the horrible things that are happening in the world. Our lives are finally in the hands of God. And we can be at peace with that. Letting him decide when to take us out of this world and we're focused on fulfilling our responsibilities in the present. He is sovereign. He is Lord. Who alone has immortality, meaning the life of God can't decay, get corrupted, and God can't finally die. We age and we die because we're sinners, but God has immortality. He is beyond death and decay. He has life in himself. What about this description? Who dwells in unapproachable light. This is a statement in the first instance about the transcendent majesty and holiness of God. He is so great, so exalted that he can't be approached. The angels in Isaiah 6 cover their faces as they say, holy, 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 because so great and so exalted is the Lord. The, this imagery of unapproachable life also captures his utter moral purity. There is no darkness, no sin in God. There is a transcendent moral purity and goodness. And he is to sinners defiled by disobedience, unapproachable, spotless, holy, and exalted. Again, we need to be careful about taking the glorious truth that God draws near to us in Christ, which he does. He is our Father in heaven. There is intimacy. There's relationship. But we need to make sure that we don't take that truth and, you, and, and we forget about God's exaltation, majesty, and the ways in which he is different from us and high above us. He is the God who dwells in an unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. Paul is here drawing that on that Old Testament theme of God's invisibility. 
that you can't see the face of God and live, and no one has seen God. Of course, God has revealed himself in Jesus, John 1, 18. No one has seen the Father, but he, he has been revealed in the Son, and we will see the glory of the Father in the face of the Son when the Son returns, according to 1 John 3. And when we see him, we will be transformed by that vision of the glory of God. But this is a way, again, of capturing God's indescribable greatness. To him be honor and eternal dominion. This is the heartbeat of the Christian life. If you have to sum up the heartbeat of the Christian life, to him be honor and eternal dominion. To him be honor and eternal dominion in what I say and what I think and what I aim at in life and in my actions. This should be the driving force of the Christian life. To bring glory and honor to this majestic God. God does not exist for us. We exist for him. God doesn't exist to fulfill all of your dreams and plans and agendas. You exist to fulfill his purposes and to live for his glory and honor. We diminish the majesty of God when we put ourselves first. And we view God as a kind of helper to get us, help us get whatever we want. To live with God at the center means that we see ourselves as, fun, as created to serve his purposes, not our own. In all that we do, in our eating and drinking, everything that we do, our first question should be, how can I bring glory and honor to the creator and to the redeemer through the way I conduct myself in this situation? That's the first question. That's the foundational question. How do you know then that you have this great vision of God and you're living in light of it? Well, those who have a vision of the greatness of God are not filled with anxiety and dread about what's happening in the world or even in their immediate circumstances. Their circumstances are dwarfed by God. Regardless of what's happening, regardless of whether there's a Democrat or Republican in office, their fundamental confidence is not in circumstances but in the Lord. And because it is in the Lord, their heart is not easily shaken. Their heart is firm, trusting the Lord, as Psalm 112 says. They're not filled with anxiety. Secondly, they are not controlled by the fear of man, by the desire to please people. Because they know who God is, they have a boldness and courage to do what is right even when it is unpopular. As J.I. Packer says in his book, Knowing God, we know that we know God when we are zealous, when we have energy for God, when his cause is our cause, when we pray, your kingdom come, when we pray for the conversion of the lost and take initiative to see that it happens, when we pray ardently for the reform of the church, for his glory, and to see his cause advancing in the world, when that is our heartbeat, we have a great vision of God. And finally, we know we have a, a vision of God's majesty and are living in light of that when we are content. If God is who Paul says he is, then we can be satisfied even in relatively humble circumstances. He is our treasure, he is our delight, and so we are content. What does it take to run faithfully to the end? What is involved in a long obedience in the same direction? This vision of God, holy, transcendent, eternally blessed, Lord of Lord and King of Kings. It is only as you see God in that way by faith and live in light of that vision that you'll be able to live faithfully. And so one of, the, one of the deepest needs that we have, even as God's people, 
is to have our eyes open more and more to his majesty so we learn to live in light of it, aiming truly in everything that we do at his glory. May the Lord open our eyes, cause us to see him for who he is, and stand in awe of him. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Lord, you are great and glorious. You are incomparable, and we pray that the glorious truth about who you are would mold, would shape, would define everything about us. We pray that you would do this more and more in our lives. Amen.